March 24th, 2016. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Javier Medina, who is Associate Professor and Vivian L. Smith Endowed Chair in Neuroscience at Baylor College of Medicine. Hi, Javier. Hello. Uh, his lab investigates the role of cerebellar circuits in motor learning and memory. His multidisciplinary toolbox capitalizes on transgenic mice, behavior, electrophysiology, optogenetics, and network simulations. And around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. That's right. Hi. Hi, Charlie. We've got Isabel Muzio. Hello. And we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Hi, Todd. Hi, Isabel. And we've got me. I'm your host, Selma Qureshi. Um, so it's it's always been intriguing to me that, that everything about the cerebellum seems so precisely anatomically organized mm-hmm. to ultimately produce a system that requires so much flexibility and its ability to learn and adapt to feedback. Um, can you just take a minute to remind our listeners about some of the structural organization of the cerebellar circuit, just the, the sort of hallmarks, and maybe extend this idea of precision to functional coding. For example, where is the information being transmitted here? Mm-hmm. Are we talking about spikes? Mm-hmm. Are we talking about the variability? Are we talking about mm-hmm. the silences? Like, just t- mm-hmm. can, you, can you sort of expand on mm-hmm. that a bit? Yeah, so uh, I think one, one of the things that we learned early on uh, about the cerebellum is that it, it has this uh, microcircuit uh, and that the microcircuit is very uh, conserved uh, in two ways. One is uh, it's very conserved across different species. So what that means is that you can take a turtle cerebellum or you can take a bird cerebellum or you can take a human cerebellum or a mouse cerebellum. And the microcircuit looks very, very similar, if not identical. Um, The other way in which uh, it seems to be conserved is across different regions of the cerebellum. So the cerebellum is pretty large, um, but no matter where you go and the inputs and the outputs of that particular region in the cerebellum are going to be coming from different places and going out to other different places. But the microcircuit within the cerebellum seems to be the same. Uh, no matter where the inputs are coming from or the outputs are being sent to. And so that, that has, you know, one of the most attractive hypotheses. I would say it's a hypothesis, uh, but it's, it's an attractive one, I think, is that the computation that the cerebellar circuit does is actually the same, no matter for what species, no matter for what part of the cerebellum, the cells there are connected in exactly the same way, and so how they're computing and how what they're doing with these inputs to produce outputs is going to be also conserved, and is going to be a universal uh, computation that the cerebellum is doing. Uh, I don't think that there is any clear evidence that that's true, but again, you know, I think I think of that as a very attractive hypothesis, uh, and uh, particularly attractive for for people who. Um, or trying to extract fundamental concepts about how brain circuits uh, work, but also because uh, I think that sometimes some of the criticism that I get about the, the work that I do from funding agencies in some cases is that, you know, it's, it's, it's very specific to understanding eye conditioning. And I always tell them, you know, it's not, I'm not trying to understand eye conditioning. I'm very far from that. I don't think that... 
understanding Ibling conditioning is an interesting question at all. I use Ibling conditioning as a, as a tool to try to ask questions about how the circuit is computing things, because I think that whatever we learn about how the computation is being taken place during this particular type of Pavlovian learning is going to apply to many other uh, functions, including, you know, uh, to uh, parts of the cerebellum that send their outputs to cerebral cortex and could be involved in more higher or cognitive uh, functions. So that's, that's what, um, that's what I think one of the things that we learn about the cerebellum is highly conserved microcircuit. So I can, Describe a little bit what that microcircuit is. Or no, 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 jump in. It's not like so. So why is it so hard? If that's if that's the case, if it's really this very well conserved thing, we know the circuit we have for a long time, and lots of people think that it's doing some computation. Uh, it seems like you know you look at the cerebellum in a couple of different systems, doing a couple of different behaviors. You see what's in common. It seems like you should be able to figure out what that computation yeah. is if it's so concerned, uh, co conserved. So is it because we're not thinking about the abstraction of what a computation is in the right way? Yeah. Or is it just each thing, you do some computation in so many different application and that computation has so much baggage with the different applications that you can't, or the different behaviors that you can't see what's in common. Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of it is that uh, I, we had a a uh, recent, so there is now a cerebellar uh, website for anybody who's interested in cerebellum to join in, and it's a, it's a growing community, although maybe it's not uh, very vibrant uh, at the time, uh, the current time. But uh, one of the dis ongoing discussions there is exactly your question, why have we not made more progress in understanding what this presumably uh, universal computation is if, if it's there. And uh, so I, I had a post there in which I recommended to some of the students who are reading those posts that there have been attempts, but it is true that I think my, my impression is that for the most part, many of us become so focused on, uh, you know, trying to understand a particular behavior. And I think that once you start, you know, then you, you start getting, going away from trying to understand some fundamental computation and you're really starting to be interested in just understanding this behavior for what it is. And I think that's, that's problematic. Um, I think that there are a lot of interesting pieces of information that can come out of doing that kind of work. But I think what we desperately need, I think maybe neuroscience desperately needs, is those people who are very, very good at synthesizing and coming, you know, bringing uh, bits of information that have been collected, you know, by different labs on different behaviors and trying to come up with that, whatever that universal hypothesis is. And there have been a couple of people like that in the past uh, that that have tried to do that. My uh, prior uh, mentor, Mike Mogg, you know, has a very, I think, a very good uh, it's paper in, in science. It's, it's kind of a review paper together with Steve Lisberger. You were saying both of them have been uh, part of this uh, podcast. So they wrote together a paper in the 90s, maybe 1996, together with Jennifer Raymond, in which I think it was a good step in that direction. They took um, VOR adaptation, which is one of the 
cerebellar learning tasks that is most widely used, and Ivan conditioning, and they try really hard in this um, paper to extract what's the com- what's the common theme here? What are the common computations? The behavior is very can be thought of as very different, but as you start reading that paper, you start realizing they're not that different. You know, and if you look at it from a computational angle, you start seeing that it's actually the same task and that the computation could be uh, the same computation and even more interesting, I think, uh, implemented in the same way within the same circuits, right? So when Mar talks about these different levels, you can talk about, is the computation the same? That's cool. But to, to see that the computation is impl- implemented at the implementation level in the same way, that's that's really cool. So that's one example of a paper that I, I pointed out uh, as, as an example of people who have really tried to extract this. But it's hard, and I think you're right. I think that in general... We're lacking that. And I think that in general, neuroscience could benefit more and more from, from people who are really good at that, at extracting general things, general principles. I have a question for you because you are, you are going over an example of different tasks within the same region. Today you propose that one of the main roles of the cerebellum is timing, but other brain regions have also been implicated in timing. For example, more recently, the hippocampus. Mm -hmm. Do you think that we can find overarching principles Mm -hmm. across brain regions, not not just across tasks? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So I didn't realize the labs that were here uh, before I came to give the talk. So I had prepared this talk that, that you heard, which is, has to do with, with timing. And so your question about timing you know, in, other, in other places. So I think that there will be uh, some general uh, principles that you can extract, not in terms of maybe cells pausing to indicate timing, you know, or maybe so. Uh, but I'll give you a, a different example that to me, it's really opened my, my eyes and I wish Sometimes that I, if I knew that I was coming here where there's so many dopamine uh, labs that I would have given this other talk. So we have um, this paper that uh, just got published in, in Nature Neuroscience where uh, we show that one of the inputs to the cerebellum is coming from the inferior olive. And these cells in the inferior olive project as climbing fibers to the cerebellar cortex. And that uh, pathway has been traditionally thought of as providing the teaching signals that teach the cerebellum how to learn. And those teaching signals come in the form of something that's called uh, prediction error, which many labs here, many of our listeners, I'm sure, know what what that is. Um, But um, the idea had always been that these climbing fibers are very good at telling you two things. Uh, And to put it in the context of having conditioning, maybe, um, they can tell you that an unexpected air puff just was delivered to the eye. So if that happens unexpectedly, these climbing fibers fire and tell you, you were not expecting this puff, but we just got puffed in the eye. Do with it what you want. And that, those signals are sent to the cerebellum. So they tell you if an, an expected stimulus is presented. They can do also something very interesting, which is tell you, if there is a stimulus that was expected, that if the air puff now is expected and you omit it, so you don't present it, 
the cells actually suppress their activity, so they're inhibited. That's you know, so they can tell you if something unexpected happened or if something that you were expecting didn't happen. Positive prediction error, negative prediction error. Very similar to the dopamine story uh, that Schulz uh, started with, with with Schulz, and I know that it's still controversial to some level, but um, that, that there are cells, dopaminergic cells that do this sort of thing is there. What the dop- some of these dopamine cells do as well is they will start, if you condition a monkey with a, with a reward, the dopamine cells tell you that a reward was presented unexpectedly, or they can also tell you that a reward that you were expecting was omitted. The other thing that is, some of these dopamine cells do is they can tell you that a stimulus that predicts that the reward is coming just happened, right? So you get a dopamine burst to stimuli that predict the, the reward. That was not something that was part of the climbing fiber story for, for learning in the cerebellum. Nobody ever thought about, well, you know, these climbing fibers, yes, they fire. It's all related to the puff. They fire if the puff is presented unexpectedly. They stop firing or they're suppressed if, if you omit the puff when it's expected. But to the CS, to the stimulus that predicts that the puff is coming, climbing fibers don't respond. Why would they? There is no reason to think that they would do anything like that. Uh, and in this paper that we just published recently, we show that climbing fibers absolutely do that. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's now come as a complete shock to everybody in the, in the field that climbing fibers are able to do this kind of predictive coding. Um, these signals in the dopamine field have been called temporal difference signals. There's a, there's a lot of um, modeling and, and uh, there's a computational framework to understand maybe the function of those signals. And I think that when we look in, in the cerebellum, we're going to see a lot of general principles to the, to the level of uh, implementation. I'm convinced of that. You know, how you get a temporal difference signal in dopamine cells by maybe um, having opponent excitatory and inhibitory uh, pathways and all of that may end up turning to be very, very similar for, for how the cerebellum works. So I think this is a good example of things going in the opposite direction. I'm learning a whole lot by reading, going through the dopamine uh, literature and finding out about how do people think about these temporal difference prediction error signals for the dopamine cells to see whether some of the findings there would apply in in the context of climbing fibers. And I hope one day something that we learn about climbing fibers may translate and inform about how the dopamine cells work. I I think that that will happen. But it it really is going to take people who who are aware of these theories and who know what a temporal difference signal looks like and what is the importance of, of that. Um, you know, we published this, this paper in Nature Neuroscience and, and there was a different group. Uh, I don't know if they would ever listen to this, but um, there was a group of very good friends in Holland who were pursuing the same uh, idea and they had sort of seen this response to the CS um, that in the climbing fibers, this predictive response. And we had seen, I think we had seen it a little bit before, but we, we were kind of trying to 
push the stories out at around the same time. And, and, and I think that one place where they could have really made their results have much more impact is if they had put it in the context of what we knew for the dopamine signals and present it more as maybe this is a general principle about how the brain codes error signals, you know, something that happens when you were not or something that didn't happen when you were expecting it. Um, and they, they, they kind of miss the boat uh, there. And now they joke. They say, oh, you know, so now, now we know how to get a paper in nature neuroscience, right? You, you have to put it in the context. And I thought, yeah, you know, like you, sh- you should, you should be doing that. I don't, you know, I don't, I, well, but the findings are, it's like, yes, no, I know, I know that we're seeing the same responses. That's good. You know, that's replication. But I think where things get really interesting and where you can bring in people from different fields is when you start talking about, hey, isn't it super interesting that these same responses are seen in some other part of the brain? So that's my five cents. I have another question for you. You have been talking so much at the single cell level. I want to know if some of the analysis that you have done has looked at how the population of Purkinje cells or the climbing fibers performs these computations and what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so um, we have um, sometimes... I, I used to uh, share, as a postdoc, I shared uh, office with uh, Dave Blake. Anybody knows him. Um, super smart guy. And he would always tell me, you know, these guys that are now about you know, multiple recordings, first of all, they're never going to get to analyze that data. It's going to take them forever. It's hard enough to get a good student or a postdoc to go through the data for one cell. When you have hundred cells, like how the hell are they going to analyze this? And I don't think that, you know, there's going to be any information that's there in the population of neurons that, that is not there at the single cell level. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a very, Dave is a very extreme person. Uh, and that's an extreme, you know, uh, argument. But, you know, and I'm, so we have started doing, you know, uh, we have something that I'm very interested. I do think that there is going to be some really interesting uh, stories to tell when you start considering um, what the population is doing, which you don't have available when you record from, from single cells. I'll just give you, so I can give you two examples. One is uh, we've done work on uh, measuring the climbing fiber inputs, not the activity of Purkinje cells simultaneously, the simple spike activity, we haven't measured that, but we've at least measured the climbing fiber inputs. And it turns out, uh, we showed uh, recently that, uh, you know, we're interested in, in these puffs uh, to, the, to the eye. It turns out that there is information in the population that is not, absolutely not available in, at the single cell level. So you can tell for example, something about the strength of this periocular puff by reading the code from the population that you can't by just looking at individual Purkinje cells. So, you know, I think that's one example. The other one that I like probably even more is a, is a nature paper from someone called Indira Raman, who has shown, and this this is amazing, uh, Purkinje cells. In, in my talk, was uh, I, 
I said, there are two things that we need to keep in mind about these protein cells. One is that they're highly spontaneously active all of the time. They're finding actual potential. The other one is, is that these are projection cells that are inhibitory. We've known that since the 70s. Um, so Indira had a paper maybe five years ago in Nature. I, I think it's a beautiful paper showing that the idea that Purkinje cells are inhibitory is tricky. So yes, they're a cabergic. Yes, they uh, produce IPSPs in their downstream targets. However, if you are so, if you have a group of of Purkinje cells that are all converging on the same cell in the deep cerebellar nucleus, if all of those Purkinje cells are firing at about 100 hertz, let's say 80 hertz but not in a synchronized manner, then the end result on the downstream cell in the deep cerebellar nucleus is you suppress their use, you really inhibit it completely. You shut it off. However, if you activate those group of Purkinje cells in a much more synchronized way, then you can actually entrain the deep cerebellar cell to follow your Stimulation. What happens, and this is kind of cool, is every time that there is some action potential in the the preclinical cell population, this is synchronized firing, you get a huge IPSP of the deep cerebellar cell that then rebounds and is able to fire before the next stimulus or the next uh, spike of the preclinical cell population arrives. And so you're really entraining the deep cerebellar. So here is an inhibitory synapse that all of a sudden if you were to consider the case of many of the Purkinje cells projecting there being synchronized, something that you would only be able to measure if you were recording Purkinje cells from the population, the, the whole computation at the synaptic level changes. It goes from inhibition pr- producing complete suppression of DCN cells to inhibition actually entraining the deep cerebellar cell to fire at particular intervals. Completely different, right? So. And that's something that um, you would have to measure the population activity to know, well, are Purkinje cells working more in this synchronized way or desynchronized way? Because it, it will matter a whole deal to the downstream cell whether they're synchronized or not. So th- those are two examples about where I think that Dave Blake uh, may have been a little bit too extreme. And I think that when we start doing those kind of experiments, which were starting to do now, um, as opposed to in the hippocampus or places like that where everybody records from multiple cells and looks at uh, information there in the, in the population. In, in the cerebellum, we've lagged behind a lot. Uh, it's mostly work focused on single cell uh, data, which is super informative, but I think now would be a good time to start thinking. Is, Go ahead. Yeah. So is there any hint of a functional... Unit. I mean, there's so there's there's a one to one between the olivary and the Purkinje cell, and then there's some like level of yeah. conversions happening in the deep yeah. cell, cell yeah. cerebellar nuclei. Yeah. But it's like this massive structure, and I always think about it's, like the size of it is never discussed. I mean, it's like unprecedented, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing else like it other than the cortex. Yeah. yeah. So where are the like what where what is the mapping? Where is the topography? Yeah. What yeah. is the I mean, do people yeah. talk about? It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. it's uh, it's something that. Uh, uh, you know, over the last, you know, probably started m- many more years, and I'm not going to reference the right people, but I know that people in Holland, uh, 
amazing neuroanatomist. So uh, I'll say Wood is, is, is one of uh, one of the important names there. From the very beginning, uh, it, it became clear that um, there is this striking modular organization in the cerebellum where um, things 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 seem to be organized in this sagittal way. So there are groups of Purkinje cells. These are cells in the cerebellar cortex, provide the output of the cerebellar cortex that are aligned in a, in a sagittal uh, direction. And cells, Purkinje cells that are aligned in this sagittal direction project to the same part of deep cerebellar nuclei. And those cells in the deep cerebellar nuclei and project to out to motor neurons, to thalamus, and to cortex. But also, uh, and it was recognized very early on, they provide an inhibitory connection to the inferior olive, which is where the climbing fibers that project to the Purkinje cells originates. So it's a loop. Purkinje cells in a parasagittal strip to DCN, deep cerebellar cells, to the inferior olive that then provide the inputs to those same uh, group of parasitically organized uh, Purkinje cells. And that has received many terms. Originally, it was done anatomically, and so people call them microcomplexes in some cases. Uh, and that has developed now to the point where now with more modern tools, people have seen you know, it's not about micro, it's kind of like, well, this part of the cerebellar cortex, let's say, you know, the uh, paravermis projects to this part of the DCN, to this part of it. That was, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Now it's to the level of these, you know, small modules where you really see single um, columns of parasitically organized Purkinje cells that receive Climbing fiber input through this uh, loop that is coming from this one little place in the inferior olive. So those are the modules that I think, if you know, if, if you ask that question about what is the organization there, everybody will will talk about these parasitically organized Purkinje cells that are thought to be controlling particular muscles. So these are organized you know, in some kind of muscle map. So you have a band of sagittally organized Purkinje cells. The, one, the sagittal band next to it would be controlling a different group of cells in the deep cerebellar nucleus controlling a different uh, muscle. So that's sort of the organization that, that, we, think, that we think about um, anatomically. Uh, that's, that's been shown. Functionally, it's because you also asked about function, it's a little bit trickier. So, you know, we all want to say, yeah, 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 this, each one of these modules is controlling a particular muscle. That's probably, there's probably some truth to that, um, you know, for parts of the cerebellum where, where the connections to modern neurons are very clear, that's probably shown at some level. But there are the majority of the cerebellum is not projecting to uh, motor neurons directly. It's projecting to parts of cortex, motor parts of cortex, and every other part of cortex that you can imagine. Uh, so, and we still we don't know. We we just don't, we don't know what the function of 
of those loops are still there, but now the outputs are being sent to very interesting places, not directly to motor neurons, but to motor cortex, yes, but many other parts of cortex that you wouldn't think of as being directly uh, relevant for the control of movement. And so it's one of the big, big, big questions in, in our field. It's like, what, what are these projections to, you know, prefrontal cortex, for example, doing? I think that we'll make progress on that in the next five, ten years, but we're only now beginning to really uh, ask questions about functional significance of, of those models. So, is there any there's there any possibility of of uh, recording the f- knowing which cells are belong to any of those microcolumns uh, functionally in uh, like as you record them? Because it seems like if you have this tight organization in the cerebellum. You can use that structure to know what is the functional pattern there. Uh, and when you project, then it may get complicated and washed out. You can't look at that. But if you can know what the difference is and what the computation is going on on the different cells in one of those yeah. uh, columns, then you might be able to say a lot about that component of yeah. that loop yeah. but, and you know, exploit that kind of organization. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if you can do, you know, I don't know if you can do some really spice, sparse viral infection and get all and a bunch of them in the same microcolon and know that that's what you're recording from. Yeah, somehow. yeah. So uh, we're lucky uh, that we do know. So, and that's kind of what's been driving my research and I think the research of, of many others, including Mike Monk. And there, there is a reason why we chose to study, to study, to use iodine conditioning, and that is because the little microsome, the little strip of Purkinje cells that is important for controlling this particular behavior can be identified, if you're careful, without having to do histology, right? And so one of the key uh, ways to identify is that these Purkinje cells uh, that belong to this particular iodine, let's call it iodine hotspot, they get input, climbing fiber input that is related to the puff. So you can puff, and if you see, you're recording from a Purkinje cell where you can see this complex spike, the complex spikes are driven by the climbing fiber input. If you see complex spikes that are driven by the climbing fiber input, and they have to have a short latency, and in fact they have to be, you know, ipsilateral and not contralateral, and you know, be pretty specific, then you're pretty sure that you're recording from one of these Purkinje cells that belongs to this iodine hotspot or iodine uh, complex. So that's a huge advantage that, that we have. And if you move your electrode and you go just slightly on, and these are very, you know, I have all the admiration. I've done some of that, that work, but now uh, these guys in, in my lab are doing it in mice. And there, you know, it's a very, very small part, you know, band of Purkinje cells. So it, it's tricky to get these cells but it's key to identify these cells for whether they belong to that complex or not. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I think that there were some studies where, um, single unit studies where people were not really trying to identify these cells by measuring the climbing fiber input. And that really can, you know, make things difficult to interpret. Um, so we record from identified Purkinje cells because we can see complex ones, but 
sometimes, depending on what question we're asking, we say, okay, well, we're interested in this particular group of Purkinje cells that gets a climbing fiber input that's related to the puff. But I showed you today an example of, you know, we have two populations of Purkinje cells, and only one of them gets this climbing fiber input that's related to the puff. The other one doesn't, uh, right? It's, these cells are kind of intermingled, you can find one and, and just move your electrode up a little bit, you'll find one of these other ones that doesn't get. Uh, so it, you don't have to move very far to be in a potentially different uh, module. So I think that where, where we are not there yet, uh, which would be super cool if uh, eventually we were able to do this, is to somehow tag some, you know, with whatever cells that belong to a particular... So we can identify when we're recording from them, kind of, but it would be great to be able to express something that you want to inactivate a particular group of cells and not other ones that may be around there. That, we were not there yet. So, this is going back, though, to topic from early on, but I can't get out of my head. Mm -hmm. Because when we say that some part of the brain is doing some kind of comp computation, what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, when people question. started talking about computations, it meant calculations. I want to evaluate a vessel function or something. That's yeah, what yeah. computation means. Yeah, yeah. And now people take computations at that scale yeah. and put them together to do something like identify a visual object. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could call it, okay, identify a visual object. That's the computation yeah. I think it's yeah. doing, but yeah. if you were actually making a machine that did yeah. that, yeah. that wouldn't really be a computation. <laughs> you wouldn't find <laughs> that anywhere. You, have, yeah. you would yeah. find that it was actually composed of yeah. all these other yeah. things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. each one of which seemed really abstract and yeah. didn't seem to have any obvious yeah. relationship yeah. to yeah. identifying yeah. visual yeah. objects. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think anybody who does no, that kind of work would ever use that phrase. <laughs> so that, um, yeah. So how in the world can we yeah. so, identify yeah. the computation? Yeah. So I totally agree with with you. Um, but so I'll give you one example. So um, uh, now Cheetah has a paper uh, very recently in. He has a couple of papers very recently, one in Nature and one in Nature Neuroscience, uh, where he and where it's the opposite, and that's where I, you know I can only aspire to be as good as he is. But what I really like about that this particular uh, set of papers is that he he talks about computation uh, for dopamine cells uh, and this prediction error, and you know he could have said. You know, well, the computation that I'm describing here is a prediction error computation. And that, it, maybe it's not as abstract as object identification, but it's still pretty abstract. It's like, you know, error computation. But he didn't say that. What, he, what the papers are about, and I think it may be on the title, is arithmetic subtraction. That, those words are in the title of the paper. That is a computation. That is something that I learned to do when, you know, whenever when I was in a little a little boy, right, and that 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 was taught to me as a computation, arithmetic subtraction, and he shows in a beautiful series of experiments that really what these dopamine some of these dopamine cells are doing. I know it's controversial, but what some of these dopamine cells are doing 
to compute something like prediction error is arithmetic subtraction. Not, not like, you know, and he, he will talk in the paper about, well, it could have been arithmetic subtraction, it could have been normalized subtraction, it could have been these other things. But no, 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 what they are doing, and we're going to show this by doing a bunch of experiments, is that what these, the computation that they, these cells seem to be doing by combining their inputs is akin to arithmetic subtraction. So I don't think that the brains, well, I don't know. I would hope that the brain could be described in, in those terms or maybe going as far as, you know, differentiation, you know, something like that where I can put a name to that computation, you know, like neural circuits that do differentiation, neural circuits that do uh, integration, right? So there's a lot of people working on that. Th those are computations that in my book are computations. When you say that the computation is object recognition, I'm fine with that if you want, but it's a very different meaning from the meaning that I have, which I think maybe it's closer to these computations that I, that, that I learned to do when I was a kid. And whether the brain does them or not, I think is, or implements them in, in funny ways, is, uh, is, is inter interesting to me. So, you know, that's one example of a very recent paper where um, arithmetic subtraction is like, you know, that's... that's so are, are you then expecting that, the that a cerebellar module will be doing some really fundamental kind of yeah. arithmetic thing, as, yeah. as simple as that? Yeah. Yeah. And that we could afford to spend that much of our brain on, even on Performing a derivative. I mean, it just doesn't seem like yeah. Well, that's what it's that you could, it. Yeah, yeah. But that isn't enough. That wouldn't be yeah. enough if your cerebellum just did that. <laughs> yeah. No, then you need. How are you ever going to be able to do <laughs> object recognition? Yeah. It's going yeah. to take so much more. Well, you know, like sometimes, like I think of the, the engineers, right? Where uh, you know, you give them a an AND gate and an OR gate, which is not they're not doing like and. You know, you combine those AND gates and OR gates in a thousand different ways, and you can get some really magical things to, to happen, right, by just combining these very elemental computations that AND gates and OR gates can do. So, you know, maybe, you know, going from subtraction to differentiation is, you know, probably not a huge step. Uh, and, you know, going from differentiation to integration you know, if, there is, if you start thinking about reversing the computation, maybe you get there, right? So, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a good question, but, um, you know, it's a hope that I have because otherwise, I, you know, if somebody tells me, I'm trying to understand the, where the computation is, is object recognition, it's like, well, I don't even know where I start. Like, how, how do I know? What? Yes, I can see that the cells recognize the object, so I can see the, out, the readout of the computation, but I'm interested in figuring out how the computation is actually made with neurons in the brain. And you know, I would hope, that, who knows, that some of those are going to be very elemental computations, like subtraction or addition or normalize. And, and there are, I'm not uh, that kind of a person, but I have a lot of respect for, for people who are asking questions at, at that level. You know, what is the elemental units of, of computation uh, that the brain uses all the time? 
So I think you can combine those in interesting ways to, to get circuits to do some really interesting stuff. But it's, it's just, I guess. Hey, thank you for being with us. Thank you. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you.